We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Chapter 39 in the book of Genesis will make no sense unless you know a little bit about chapter 38. And of course, chapter 38 will make no sense unless you know a little bit about chapter 37. It's turtles all the way down. It's all the way. The story of the book of Genesis, of course, is the story of brothers. Stories of the book of Genesis is stories of family. And the locus of that attention, of course, is predominantly on brothers. And the larger question, which we review every year, because it seems to always be up perennially, you know, for humans, which is, am I my brother's keeper? That question rhetorically asked by Cain when he slew his brother Abel in the field, fratricide. That question interrogated of God in the book, in which God knows everything, of course, is met with God's non-response. God could have just done us a really easy job and just answered affirmatively, yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's not the way the book of Genesis unfolds. It leads it to us, the readers, and those who are year in and year out looking for wisdom to follow what happens over the course of generations when brothers are not their brother's keeper. First with Ishmael. The story of Isaac and Ishmael, where Ishmael is not chosen, but is left out of the family. Then in Esau and Jacob, where Esau is not chosen and Jacob is. And then finally, in chapter 37, the background for chapter 38 and 39, where Joseph, the chosen one, has dreams, has a really amazing wardrobe. He has the lineage of his father, Jacob, has given him the coat of lineage, his technicolor, quote-unquote, dream coat, and Joseph comes to his brothers and says, hey, I have an amazing dream. You are all going to bow down to me. And they don't like hearing that. Surprise, surprise. And he is then, in chapter 37, thrown into a pit by the brothers who, right, in a replay of Cain and Abel, are conspiring, plotting to kill their brother. And just as he is sold into slavery, sold down the river to, or the Nile, as it were, the end of chapter 38, the curtain comes down and chapter 38 opens. And Judah now goes down. What does Judah have to do with the story? Well, Judah in chapter 38 will, will go down away from the brothers. He'll also separate, but this time voluntarily in order to learn the lesson of leadership. And throughout the course of chapter 38, which is maybe arguably the most important book, the most important chapter in all of Western literature, Judah learns what it is to be willing to sacrifice being right for the sake of being a leader. 
And Judah learns that lesson from his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's an amazing story. I'm not going to go into it now. Go read your chapter 38. It's great. I mean, really great. And then chapter 39 opens. Back to, we, like, we interrupted the Joseph program to give you the Judah narrative where Judah learned a lesson about leadership. And now back to Joseph. Verse 1. And Joseph also went down. Just as Judah went down, characters in the Bible that go down means that they have morally and spiritually also hit hard time. They hit rock bottom. Joseph goes down. He is bought by a man named Potiphar. From the hand, of course, interestingly enough, in verse 1, from whom? The hand of the Ishmaelites. And if you've been following the narrative, to be sold by the Ishmaelites means this is a karmic comeuppance. The Ishmaelites are the ones who give Joseph to the Egyptians. As if the Bible is telling us, you see, right? There's no way for, for those things that are not healed to be healed until they are visible, until they're made known. Right? The collective unconscious of the book of Genesis will keep rearing its head. It'll keep coming back until it gets touched. And so here we have verse 2. He, he makes his way into this house of Potiphar, into the, right, into the, right next to the royalty. And what happens? Immediately, Potiphar says, here's a guy that knows how to run a business. Here's a guy that I want to run my house. This guy, Joseph, he knows what he's doing. Everything that Joseph touches becomes gold. Joseph is the guy. He's like, oh, wow, we had no idea. And so over two, three, four, five, five verses, the Torah will tell us how much Potiphar will trust him. He, it, redundantly, almost repetitively, almost like he's really trusted. How, he's super trusted. I mean, so trusted. He's trusted and trusted and everything that his master owns, he gives to Joseph. Joseph rules everything. It's Joseph, Joseph, amazing. And it sets the scene, of course, for what's about to happen that Oliver will also talk about very powerfully about what it is to rise up from a challenge, what it is to be faced with some obstacle. Of course, the first obstacle is that having given Joseph everything in verse 7 and beyond, which is the next reading, Joseph will have to come up against the wife of Potiphar who propositions him and says, wow, you are really, so I love you. I want you. The Torah says, she says to him, sleep with me. I should, is that a PG-13? I should have had that like, you know, qualification, um, warning. And what does Joseph do? Joseph says, no. And for the second time in the Joseph narrative, he is stripped of a coat. The first one is being stripped by the brothers. And in the second moment, he's stripped of his coat, of his garment by the wife of Potiphar who grabs it and he runs out. He runs out. And it's a turn in his character's He's not willing to take advantage of his privilege. He's not willing to take advantage of his chosenness. He's not willing to use the coat, as it were, and the cloak of power to do something wrong, unlike what he did in chapter 37. It's an amazing turn for his character. He's, much, he's willing to be naked and publicly shamed rather than wear a cloak that doesn't benefit others. But I want to stop for a moment in this open up, in this first reading, which will be a group calling up to the Torah, to focus on verse 6. So turn to page 239 
We're going to read verse 6 together. Vayazov kol lo biyad Yosef. And Potiphar left everything that belonged to him in the hands of Joseph. Velo yada uma, And he did not... <clears throat> Right, nothing. <clears throat> he didn't pay attention to anything, but the food that he ate. Meaning, he trusted him with everything except feeding him. That's a pretty high level of trust for a monarch or some ruler, right? By he Yosef, and Joseph was, and here is the coda of verse six that seems anomalous and oddly placed. Yefet toar yefet mar'eh, and Joseph was well built and handsome. Here's where we open up. A number of different theories as to why this piece of the verse has to be here. So let's get it, get it going in here. So what do you think? What do you think this is on a simple literary level or your own midrashic voice? Why you think? But this four words, and he was well-built and handsome. Handsome, four words, and handsome. What's the setup here, right? What's, what's the purpose here? of telling us how handsome he was and everything was going his way and he was so successful. What's the setup for you? And I'm going to invite you to speak. Robin, you start us off. Yeah. So as a literary device, it sets up what will be his downfall or his rising up, right? In other words, he's so beautiful and that's why the character, the wife of Potiphar, finds him attractive and that sets up the seduction and the temptation that he withstands. So it serves as a literary hook. Okay, great. Someone else. Who else wants to tell us why the verse, what's it pointing to? Yes, Jillian. Jilly. <clears throat> she can't speak up because this is her voice, and I will say it again. I'll say it louder. Okay. talking about superficial attributes rather than being really a good person, which maybe will come later. So it's focusing us not on the literary device of what will come later, but on his character to kind of weigh into understanding Joseph himself. It's not just he was seen as beautiful, but he saw himself as beautiful, and a a kind of superficiality that itself might be the setup for the seduction. His own self-perception was, oh, I'm the hot guy. Right? I'm well-built. I'm, you know, that's who I am. I'm that guy. Okay. All right. Someone else want to add? What, what, what's, what's going on here? Is it about Joseph? Is it about, like, the story? So one, one place we can go, and if there's no one else, any other takers? Oh, okay. We have quite a few. So we're going to start from the back. Stephanie, and, and again, it's, wait for Arthur to bring the microphone because we have a, a big group here. Hello. Um, well, in the in next week's parsha, when it talks about the the cows that are um, like skinny, that represent the the years of famine, it actually says raot toa. Like, so it's the same language, but kind of opposite. It's like bad looking or something like. So maybe yafet doesn't only mean like attractive but maybe has the appearance of 
good fortune since these cows are like bad fortune coming. Right. So, so Stephanie just did something. I got to slow down and just point out what you did, which is beautiful. <laughs> you intertextually went to another place where the same Hebrew phrase is used, but later on in the Bible. And you read and learned from that expression of this Hebrew phrase uniquely. You then learned from that and brought it back to where we are in the Bible right now and said, perhaps just as the description of the cows in Pharaoh's dream later on in next week's Torah portion where he has right, a vision and a dream of fat cows and lean cows which represented fat years and lean years and in the description of the cows that were lean, they're called lean in appearance. So that meant that it was bad fortune. And you're saying maybe here the Torah is telling us not only is he good looking, but it's also he has good fortune. He, he has a, a way, he's kind of a good luck charm. Right, it's a way of saying, and hey, Joseph was a lucky, lucky guy. Beautiful. Rabbi Judy. Arthur, right here, Rabbi Judy. Wait for the microphone, Rabbi Judy. The husband, the husband uh, Potiphar, is busy eating and not paying attention to his wife, and he is this really good-looking young man in the household. And so it kind of excuses, which I never really noticed before, uh, the master's wife that she got attracted to. Where's Elise? Is Elise walking? <laughs> so, so in our open book this morning, Rabbi Judy is pointing out that there's a way of reading Torah where the white space around the letters is itself full of unspoken context and background. And in your reading, and also we had this morning, Elise also brought this forward, there's a whole story through the prism and the eyes, not of Joseph, but through the eyes of the wife of Potiphar, who is never named. And in that context, we would see this, he is beautiful, as a way of signaling that the wife of Potiphar, um, as in a way, her story is not told. She was lonely, or she was yearning. There was something unfulfilled in her, which is a very modern reading, of course, of the story. The story, I would say, very simply wants to blame her on some level. But certainly, right, it also lends itself to, to a, a, a softer reading of this, of this story. I want to also, I want to lift up now, um, I think Tony, did you want to say something? Yeah, if Tony could, and then we're going to come in for landing, everybody. We only have about 20 minutes of this, but Tony, bring us to something here. Okay, so first of all, putting, slice, splicing together the comment about outward beauty, superficial beauty, charm, and good fortune, it, that maps to or pivots to what you were saying at, in the open book about he's the way, he's yeah. potentially the way. Is he might, might as touch or the way or both? But speaking just, and I'm coming in for landing now, speaking of Pharaoh's wife, she, if you're going you, to make the mistake of getting into a blame game or a shame game, she's guilty of two th sins, not only wanting wanting on on a car, but also misinterpreting this in a kind of misinterpreting the her into her own intuition. Beautiful. Yeah. So 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 we're here's where I want to go now, and just we're coming in for a landing, what we call the open up, and inviting people to come forward. When I read a midrash, there was a rabbinic, a late midrashic source that says that when the Torah tells us, and we had all these reasons for it, the descriptor of his beauty, aesthetic, and so on. This Midrashic source said, really, the reason why the Torah tells us this is to actually to lay some onus, some responsibility at the feet of Joseph. 
And at great risk here, again, walking a fine line between blaming someone against whom some power structure has been played out, but also inviting us to recognize, as Midrash, that as soon as he saw that he had power again, like he had with his father, right? He had been thrown into the pit briefly, but then all of a sudden he'd been raised up again. And the Midrash says, <clears throat> as soon as he was raised up again, he started to act the way he had been acting when he was in his house with Jacob. He started to play with his hair, says the Midrash. He started like drinking a lot and having a good time. He said, wow, I have all of my, the household at my, how many people here can say that though they have been given much in terms of privilege, that they feel equally called as the Gospel of Luke says, I sometimes quote the Gospel of Luke, because it was originally Torah, and in it, if you read it in the Aramaic and also in the Hebrew, it says, To those for whom much has been given, there is much demanded. To those to whom much has been given, much is demanded. The Midrash comes and takes Joseph to task and says, You, Joseph, who had so much responsibility, how dare you use it in that moment to raise yourself up when your father is at home mourning for you and here you are going out to bars and buying more clothing for yourself. This moment is not a moment of triumph for Joseph, although in a moment Oliver will lead us to one moment of triumph for Joseph. This is a moment in the reading of the rabbis in the ninth century, the Midrash and Chuma of to those to whom much has been given, much is demanded. And at this time of the year, I think, especially given everything that's going on nationally and internationally, both within the American polity and within the Jewish community, it's a wake-up call to realize that even though we in the United States didn't have to struggle with anti-Semitism for almost two decades now, anti-Semitism has been rising in Europe, we were busy in the house of Potiphar. Things were great. Everything had been given to us. We had everything that we could possibly want, and we forgot for a moment. And many of us in the liberal community are guilty of this too. That way back in some other place, there's something else going on. We can become so focused on the local, we can forget the bigger picture. This morning's Open Up, Aliyah, is based upon that Midrash. And I want to thank each and every one of you for contributing your own understanding of the beauty of Joseph's curls. But I want to call forward this morning as we turn Torah to tefillah, from learning to prayer. Those who are in some way aware of their own privilege, aware of how much has been given to them, and that frequently they might find themselves forgetting the other part of the equation, which is, to those to whom much has been given, much is being requested. A wake-up call to both recognize our blessings and our power and be aware at the same time and hold very strongly the responsibility that comes with it. You know, I read this morning about George, w, George H. Bush and one thing that characterized him in, in, in much that was being written about him was his sense of mission over and over again that he had a sense of mission. For those who don't know, uh, former President Bush passed away last night. 
and he had a sense of mission, a sense of mission. He said, you know, much has been given to him and debating his legacy, I'm not into that, but that there's a sense of purpose, a sense of mission if you have been given something, if you've been given all the keys to the house, you have a tremendous responsibility to make sure that the door is open for others too. I want to call that unique and very specific blessing forward this morning. And if it speaks to you in any way, to please come on up, open up to the Torah at this moment for the first reading of this morning's Torah service. 